Hello, I'm Richard Edgar and you join me on a beach near my home in South East England where I've come for a quick breather to reflect on the May episode of Rich Pickings, which we've just recorded. This month, how to invest when all around you the old rules are being ripped up? What's taking the role of government bonds? Which way will inflation go as authorities pump economies full of cash via debt? We have some pretty strong views and my guests even managed to find some silver linings to the clouds. Not that there are many of those in the Kentish sky above me now. But back to business, listen on to find out more. Joining me on the line, also down here in the southeast of England, our global economist Anna Stubnitska, lead cross-asset strategist Wenwen Lindroth, but also from Hong Kong, portfolio manager and head of multi-asset investment management in Asia, Matt Quaife. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. Now, what I'd like to know from each of you, what are you missing the most while you're under lockdown? Anna, what about you? I have been really missing um, the seaside just walking on the seaside, swimming in the sea, clearly uh, had the holiday planned, which got cancelled over Easter. So. Well, I feel very lucky because um, that's exactly where I am by the seaside. I'm missing the city. At some stage, we'll have to do a swap. Um, when, when? Uh, what are you missing most about lockdown? Well, I was supposed to visit my parents in California in April. So to be perfectly honest, I miss my family in the States. Oh, that's, uh, that's something we can all identify with. And Matt, uh, you're in Hong Kong and you're in the office, so you, you're out of lockdown. Yeah, we never really went into full lockdown, but we obviously went out of um, the office uh, and we don't have um, cases in, in society here. So it's, it's, it's somewhat of a different environment. Was there anything that you missed while you were away from the office? The coffee? Family, frankly, from the UK, you know, my parents and things. Being able to actually leave Hong Kong, beautiful place, but... Being able to travel is, uh, is, 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 would be nice. Absolutely. Well, um, let's move on then to the, uh, the programme proper. Um, you're in a part of the world that, uh, well, in Asia generally, that's furthest along the path of uh, recovery. Does it feel like that right now? It does. It does. Um, and, but I want to kind of make a comparison of uh, Hong Kong strategies to the West strategy and how that might differ. But to give you the kind of friendly anecdotals, um, there's heavy traffic, probably heavier than before because people aren't using public transport. The beaches are full, the malls are full. If you tried a social distance on an escalator to work, you would be waiting half an hour. Um, so it, it's definitely activity-wise, pretty much you wouldn't know the difference apart from everyone's wearing masks. But but I want to make the point that Hong Kong has gone for a strategy of zero virus in society right so so effectively we had one case a few days ago but um actually two but in essence we've shut it out of the country and locked down to only residents and the west is going for a, a strategy of r zero of one so it's effectively saying we're going to deal with it but we're going to keep it at a, at a manageable level and and i and i what will be interesting is how different those two worlds look and and how those worlds could deviate over the next uh months or, or you know or even years because it's all still in play, isn't it? When, when, what's preoccupying the fixed income team? Um, partly as you see these different strategies that uh, Matt's talking about, but um, it's playing out so differently, isn't it? Yes. Uh, well, the fixed income markets and uh, the portfolio managers and analysts certainly were considering 
pretty much everything. Valuations have come in quite a bit. Investment grade is um, you know, 50% tighter than it was versus the wides in March. High yield is 30% tighter. So um, we're at a place in the market right now where valuations are much richer, but there are still a lot of risks out there with regard to the economy and uh, distress and bankruptcy as well. You've given us lots to think about there, Wenwen. Uh, Anna, what's your concern? I wanted to, to talk about something slightly different because it, it, it's really, it really represents the potential costs of the lockdowns and of the crisis that we've just been in. Um, and that is that um, the majority of um, the world's roughly 1.5 billion school children are out of schools, have been out of schools as schools have closed. And the statistic that one of them that really horrifies me is that according to some studies, over the long summer break, uh, young children, well, in the US and other countries lose between 20 and 50% of the skills they gained over the school year. So the combination of school closures during lockdowns and the upcoming summer holidays means that children will might lose the whole year in terms of uh, their skills. And I think in terms of the cost to the society, cost to individual families, um, it, it's enormous and it's horrifying. It's a crisis that reaches into so many different um, parts of our lives, isn't it? Well, let's get a little bit more on the current situation from portfolio manager Ian Sampson, who has always has been poring over Fidelity's leading indicator, the fly, and the array of data and surveys that feed into it. The fly signals how the global economy is expected to perform in the short term. Ian spoke on the phone from Hong Kong to producer Seb. Ian, last month you explained how the fly was halfway to the trough of where it reached during the global financial crisis. So where is it now? Unsurprisingly, the Fidelity leading indicator in terms of its three-month growth rate is now comfortably below the trough that we saw in the global financial crisis, which itself was probably the, the worst uh, contraction in, um, in certainly my lifetime. Digging down in, into the fly, um, China shows up quite clearly in, in two components. One is in the PMIs, the business surveys, and the other is in Asian trade data. So in China, undoubtedly, while the, the rest of the world has continued to see its business surveys fall sharply to, to all-time lows, China since uh, February has had um, two better months. But for those that are really hoping for for a strong recovery, even in China, where they almost couldn't have dealt with the virus better, it seems that's really not what you're seeing. So some of the, the surveys, in, even in services, are still pointing to either flat month-on-month growth um, or, or even slight contraction. Another interesting um, factoid coming out of the fly is looking at Korean exports, which, given its composition, cars... Uh, semiconductors, petrochemicals. It, it really is a, at the heart of um, global supply chains and, and, and a lot of global industries. And that had a really, really bad month. But actually two areas that seemed almost unaffected was its exports to China um, and its exports of, of semiconductors, the sort of lifeblood of tech hardware. A clear pocket of resilience, perhaps tied to, to China holding up better than the rest of the world um, and to continued uh, ploughing ahead with things like 5G. 
So a bit of a bright spot there. Have we seen the worst, do you think? And where, where do we go from here? How quickly and to what extent do you think these readings can bounce back as, as lockdowns start to ease around the world? I would imagine that this is the bottom um, in terms of actual activity levels around the world. Just because if 70% of the world is in full lockdown, it's hard to get... Uh, any worse. So yes, May will be a little bit better uh, than than April, undoubtedly. The way I'm thinking about it is a, is a full lockdown is about a, a 20% um, or, or more hit to your GDP, whereas a partial lockdown is, is more like a 15% hit. Um, and what I think the fly will be very interesting in, in showing is once we kind of get out of the, the most acute phase of lockdown in the next month or two, the fly should tell us if if momentum is is maintained, um, or if actually we're we're more or less just flatlining and, and struggling to really catch up, um, to what potential growth uh, would be. Ian Sampson there talking from Hong Kong, making a convincing argument for this being the bottom of the trough. It's about as bad as it can possibly be with an enormous negative impact on demand. Um, Anna, does that fit with your view? It does. I think it makes uh, total sense. A lot of economists were uh, in uh, full lockdowns, partial lockdowns. Now things are opening up uh, and momentum is picking up. And we will see that in activity data, in, in traffic data. But for me, the question is um, how long it will take to get to pre-crisis levels in terms of GDP, in terms of growth rates, and whether we have seen any permanent uh, destruction in, um, in output, in potential growth across the world. Well, Matt, what um, Ian was highlighting there with the data from China and South Korea in particular is that there are some pockets where that recovery really um, is, is, is coming back quickly that, um, it, you know, perhaps not permanent damage. It is, um, and potentially less permanent damage here in this part of the world um, due to the, the level of the virus and how quickly it was dealt with. I guess the, the, the question is, and I would completely agree with it being um, the bottom, is what level of activity can be maintained in order to keep the virus at an R0 of 1? So how do you keep the virus contained um, what can you get to? And we've been looking at some academic studies out of Italy um, and, and, and others on this. And, and potentially the GDP numbers around minus five compared to normal levels. And so, you know, that's the next thing to look for. Um, and then the question is, how long do you have to stay there until you can go to uh, the levels that Anna was talking about, which is, you know, returning to pre-crisis um, uh, levels and, and, and how much permanent damage has been done through that entire period. And when when we've done a, a survey of analysts at, um, at Fidelity, and that also has highlighted quite a, a patchwork, um, a very different picture uh, amongst different sectors and in different parts of the world. Does that chime with what, what you're seeing as well? Yes, absolutely. I, I think we all know that China was first in and first out of the crisis. Um, their manufacturing sector has come back uh, pretty nicely, um, not so much the consumer, but just thinking you know, globally and in terms of global growth, um, really, there are two big drivers for me. Um, one is ch the Chinese industrial manufacturing sector, and the other is the consumer in the US. Okay, well, we'll, we'll come to that in a little bit. Um, but first of all, I want to talk about inflation. We've got a clip now from Fidelity's chief investment officer, Andrew McCaffrey, speaking earlier today on the topic of when or if he expects to see inflation. 
we have, I think, uh, enormous amount of intervention and commitment to provide intervention from uh, governments and from the central banks of the world, which have, um, uh, as we've seen in markets, have provided a, a you know very a good backdrop in terms of a healing process and where we see in markets go through a recovery in um, uh, price levels, spread levels that we've uh, seen um, recover significantly in fixed income markets. But I think it's a little too early to be saying that um, the demand shock that we've gone through, uh, you know, is that going to be uh, eradicated quickly through activity picking up um, that to return to uh, areas of normality in, in that activity and income production that will allow us to be able to um, see a chance maybe of um, that uh, prices start to uh, to increase and then uh, the amount of liquidity in the system being maintained pushing through into inflationary pressures. I, I think what is important though is that um, uh, you know we are looking at uh, you know, very unique environment where we've had these um, you know, combined forces at work and done so quickly um, between just the huge amount of liquidity pumped into the to the system um, that uh, versus the uh, extent of the demand collapse that we've seen because of the, uh, the the lockdown. Things to watch on will be production levels. Um, you know how much has been taken out of the system. Therefore, as uh, activity comes back, how much does that squeeze on elements of uh, supply? Um, the degree to which we see that uh, some of this huge monetary explosion stays within the system and the way that that plays out and also that you know the liquidity to solvency uh, issues and how those are repaired and whether they are repaired in a way that allows then for you know real momentum in growth to pick up and and therefore we can start thinking of the deflationary pressures that you know we've been witnessing and um, uh, you know feel upon us just at the moment can turn into something that is more balanced than maybe even uh, the risk of inflation but this I think is still a multi-month process at the very minimum if not into multi-year and so you know, too early to be too definitive, but clearly we're going to have quite a battle ahead between these different uh, elements at play. So Chief Investment Officer Andrew McCaffrey there, he talks about how effective the repair is going to be, but his conclusion is it's too early to, to tell about inflation. Anna, you've been working closely with Andrew on, on this topic. Um, what else have you found? I think uh, when we're talking about inflation versus deflation, we need to consider different time horizons. So clearly right now we are facing a huge deflationary shock. I don't think there is that much controversy about it. Um, uh, in the medium term, so uh, over the next year and beyond the next sort of one to three years, um, I also believe that uh, uh, the forces, uh, those deflationary forces are going to be very strong because the recovery in demand relative to production resumption is going to be the main driver behind that low inflation. We have continued US dollar strength. Clearly, the uh, unemployment levels and the gap that, that Matt mentioned between full activity resumption and activity resumption with social distancing in place um, is very likely to result in a persistent output gap that will continue exert deflationary pressures. In addition to that, uh, we have a massive debt overhang. We have um, behavioral changes potentially coming uh, in the corporate sector, in the household sector, that I think will lead to uh, higher savings, uh, precautionary savings in particular uh, in the household sector. All this is deflationary. Now, over the longer term, 
It's too early to say. And I hear a lot of uh, arguments about inflation rising uh, over the next two to three years, given the amount of liquidity in the system and given the amount of stimulus. Now, I, I don't understand why inflation would rise, given that all the stimulus is going to fixing uh, liquidity issues in the markets and to plugging it, the, the income holes that have been created by the crisis, by, by these lockdowns. Nothing that we have seen so far anywhere in the world is going uh, to enhance growth, is going to enhance productivity. So I cannot see how this can be uh, inflationary. QE has been very deflationary, uh, we know, in the aftermath of, of the financial crisis. And I think the same applies here. And fiscal policy uh, intervention, as we say, not stimulus, is just um, uh, to try to sort of manage the economies through this crisis. Nothing, again, nothing is growth enhancing. And that's my main argument uh, for deflation. However, I do think it depends on institutions, right? But if we do get fiscal dominance of monetary policy after this crisis and central banks lose their independence in terms of uh, their mandate and the inflation targeting and the government will be telling the central banks to print money and to do monetary financing well yeah probably hyperinflationary in, in a number of countries but right now today and also given the trajectory that i think uh, you know, how it will evolve. I think this is, for now, a low probability scenario. Okay, it does seem a long way off that 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 scenario that you're you're painting um, of, of a complete restructuring of the uh, the monetary systems. Matt, you manage uh, money. Are you satisfied by those types of arguments where inflation is a is a problem not for tomorrow, not even for next week, but but a, a long way hence? Or are you still sort of building in um, some caution in the way that um, that you structure your 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 portfolio? No, we, we're, we're building in caution in the way that we um, build the portfolio, but there are areas of the market that are cheap where you don't even need the inflationary world to play out. So in other words, you know, we've been buying some energy um, in the last, last month or so where we think that um, it, it will likely produce alpha uh, under either scenario over the medium term, but would do really well if the inflationary um, environment played out. So in general, I, I would say that we're um, in, completely in line with, um, with with Anna, but building in hedges so that so that um, they would play off if if the inflationary world played out. What you're describing is that the whole context has changed, the context in which you're having to operate. So how are you dealing with that? To a degree, one of the ways you can you can think about markets at the moment is you've got incredibly strong opposing forces at, at, at this juncture. So on the one hand, when you think about, for instance, equity markets, we, you can often decompose them into discount rates, which is how much is policy causing the PE level to go up or down, um, and growth rates, which is how much do you expect earnings to um, to come on, and 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 it's a similar picture at the moment where policy is pushing hard on the discount rate and potentially pushing PE levels up um, compared to history, but the growth, as we've heard from Ian and and, and others, is, is potentially challenged for the medium term, and you have these kind of com- 
these two forces coming together and 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 how they balance will will ultimately feed into kind of levels of markets and it's similar on the inflation deflationary side because anna was talking about the household and the corporates and it's very hard to see how they won't be rebuilding balance sheets deleveraging post this without the government intervention so the question is is the government sector going to more than offset that? And that's, again, opposing forces. So you can imagine this whole market environment at the moment is almost like two tectonic plates pushing against each other in all these different areas. And it's our job to try and work out which side of it um, we are. So we're more cautiously positioned and we're selecting areas of the market which we think will we'll, we'll be winners off the, off the back of this. So we still like Asia very much and we like the areas that are directly backed by central banks. So for instance, credit um, as an example um, and areas um, of sectors that we think will perform. So we, we've um, recently put on tech positions that can see through this and benefit from that that discount rate as well as play positions like energy um where we think the valuations are cheap enough to do well in most scenarios can i just bring in when when because um you've mentioned credit you've mentioned energy um these are areas uh, that i know that when when is an expert in and also when when you talked about the us where of course um you know there are trillions and trillions of dollars going into into that economy um they're chucking several kitchen sinks in i think that anna put it very well um you know we're facing a collapse in demand huge output gaps um all the slack in the labor market that's highly deflationary in the near term And then um, something that Andrew's talked about a lot, which is that the money coming out of governments right now is really more interventionary and intended to bridge to the other side of COVID as opposed to actual stimulus. So um, that's not inflationary. I totally agree with, you know, the group on this. And then just to sort of, you know, roll forward from that, um, I'm actually more of a Keynesian than a monetarist. So I think that at the end of the day, we're going to see inflation when final demand comes back. And, um, you know, we're kind of in a hole right now. But when I look at the U.S. and I think about the political pressures that are, you know, over there and what um, drives policymakers, ultimately, it's about creating jobs. And, um, you know, the U.S. went through a, a pretty terrible unemployment situation, not as bad as this one, but a bad one in 0809. And the outcome of that was a very slow recovery in the jobs market. Um, a lot of politicians were voted out of office. The Tea Party rose and Trump was voted into office much because of the the, the employment situation. So I think this time around, um, policymakers are going to really focus on creating jobs and getting the unemployment rate down from 20-25% to something more reasonable, um, back to the mid-single digits. And it's going to take an enormous amount of stimulus to get there. And an enormous amount of time as well, surely, because the, the shock to, to the economy is so great that even with injections of, of cash, even with a policy focus on um, uh, creating jobs, the situation that Anna described um, a few moments ago, where the pressures for inflation still seem to be a long way away, don't they? Yes. I mean, first, legislation would need to be passed for something, you know, on the order of a new deal or a green new deal. 
Um, and then after that, the jobs would need to start being created and people would need to start, you know, seeing stronger income for inflation to be created. Um, so yes, it is some years off. I think it could be outside of most people's investment time horizons. It could be three years or more. Let's stick with you and um, the US economy because consumption makes up about 70% of, of that economy. With employment hitting record levels there, um, how quickly do you think that the labour market in the US can bounce back? Because it's famous for being a, a hire and fire culture, but is there anything different about um, this situation that we find ourselves in now? Yeah, it, it's a pretty difficult situation because we're in a bit of a vicious circle right now where people are not going out and spending money um, and since they aren't doing that, then companies are shutting down, particularly the small businesses, mom and pop stores. And so, um, you know, as long as we're in this situation where uh, people are constrained from going out and spending money and also worried about spending money because of economic uncertainty or they've lost their jobs, um, it's going to be difficult to get things going again. And this is why it's so important, um, as Matt pointed out, that the government come in and give a kickstart to the economy so that um, we can start a virtuous cycle. Anna, um, I think it was Larry Summers said last year that um, the US was only one recession away from what he described as black hole monetary economics, the sort uh, that we've seen in, in Europe and Japan where interest rates get stuck to or, or around zero. Are we going to see that play out in the US as well? I think uh, it's highly likely at this point in time, yes. Uh, um, the U.S. rates uh, are almost uh, uh, zero, uh, just above. Uh, it is possible that uh, earlier or later the Fed will have to go into the negative rates territory, even though they have uh, clearly um, denied it for now. Uh, but I think that um, the that scenario of uh, Japanification that we have been worried about for years, particularly in the context of Europe, uh, is so much more likely now, uh, not just in Europe, but in the US. It's been said many times that a lot of the trends uh, have been accelerated. The trends that we had seen before uh, COVID, they have accelerated uh, during the crisis. And look, I think this is one of them. Uh, the combination of uh, demographics, uh, uh, huge debt, uh, policies that are not, uh, again, enhancing productivity, human capital, encouraging productive investment uh, just means uh, low for longer in terms of rates, uh, growth and inflation. And uh, again, I just want to emphasize this is not set in stone and a lot will depend on policies. So a really good outcome uh, would be for governments um, to start encouraging high investment in productive capacity by the private sector, so not just uh, by the government, to uh, invest, uh, encourage, uh, encouraging to invest in innovation, in skills, in sustainability. There's a lot of talk about it right now. Uh, but if this policy is successfully implemented, um, that can really help avoid the Japanification scenario uh, for, you know, for any country. Uh, my problem is I'm yet to sort of see the government that can take a really long-term view 
because the structural policies that don't yield results straight away, and unfortunately that gap between the uh, election cycle um, and the longer-term effect of growth-enhancing structural policies is too is is too big. Um, so I'm a bit skeptical, but you know, uh, I'm I'm still hoping that it might happen somewhere. I like that. <laughs> a very optimistic note, Matt. Um, you've got to try and operate within um, this situation. You know, we, we we're in a bit of a crisis. You've got um, uh, governments trying some new things. You've got government bonds, for example, um, which were always the thing that um, invest, investors would rush to for their defensive properties and to, to try and mitigate the volatility in portfolios. They're not really and also delivering some return. They're not really doing that part of the equation, are they? So what different assets are you looking at um, at the moment when um, we've got to rely in some part on the hope that um, Anna just just offered us there? No, you're, you're exactly right. If you think of a 60-40 portfolio with 40% bonds, you'd expect maybe 1% over cash from those government bonds in normal time and to form a safety net so they go up when equities go down. And because of where they are, that upside just isn't there. And and if there was any kind of normality in with it within these um bonds in general then there uh, you know the future returns aren't there so you know how do you build a defensive basket that does what that is supposed to in in a, in a balanced portfolio um we still like some government bonds so uh the likes of the US could still go further um than than where it is um china government bonds are actually quite defensive they're a little bit lower volatility but um in a world where uh, monetary policy becomes even looser. There, there is definitely room to run uh, in in that regard. Um, we still like holding gold here um, in the world where um, real rates get even lower uh, due to the the level of debt. Um, you know, gold gold can can run even further. And then other other currencies like um, the yen it remains to have defensive properties. So it's kind of building a defensive basket out of these types of. Um, assets can replace what you would traditionally do with just purely um, global uh, government bonds. And if you like the yen, um, does that mean that you perhaps don't like the dollar, the US dollar? Because, you know, Wenwen's just talked about the um, the huge deficit there. Um, is it uh, is the shine going, going off the dollar? Well, if you purely look at the dollar, um, you can tell a very good story. So you can say, oh, you know, interest rate differentials have fallen it's overvalued. Uh, it generally falls when volatility falls. So if we're, if we're past the worst, you know, maybe we're there. So you get all excited and you go, oh, maybe it's time to short the dollar. And then you look for the pair to put it against and you go and look at the UK, my lovely home Brexit negotiations in the next few months look pretty, pretty tricky. And then you look at Europe and you've got all sorts of issues with, you know, the German rulings on ECB, uh, the, the Italian debt situation in terms of the downgrades there, all sorts of tail risks um, in, in Europe as well. So it's very hard to kind of go around the world. You could even go to the, you know emerging markets and certain areas of emerging markets that just don't have the fiscal capacity to deal with the virus issues that they've got. So it's very hard to just be structurally short dollars here. Um, but but we do still like you know selective areas, so the yen, um, Australian dollar, these types of areas. So you've given us a long litany of things to be worried about there, Matt. But I'm going to seize on the the last uh, couple of uh, signs of hope. Um, where else are you looking for good news? I think I think you could potentially be positive about you know 
we you've got to remember that basically the whole of the science, medical scientific research community is working incredibly hard and putting themselves to work to 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 work this out whilst we think that you know potentially we 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 think that this can last for some time you've got to remember humanity's trying pretty pretty hard to overcome this and it and it generally does in the end right each time so i think you know that that's certainly a positive that you can you can look to and 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 the innovation and and hopefully i would hope just going to is that governments realize that actually backing science in that way going forward um, would, would be a big positive. If you're going to spend some fiscal money, um, science isn't a bad way to, to go. Thank you. Wen-Wen. Okay, so um, I would identify sort of three big areas where there are positives coming out. And one positive is that, you know, the pandemic is time limited, and this is not about a structural weakness in the global economy. It was exogenous. So we know it's going to come to an end. You know, the repair is going to take time, but, uh, you know, the pandemic will end. Um, The second big bucket is how important ESG has become in all of this. And just the idea that corporations can stop for a second and just think about the social good and operate for the social good is a wonderful thing. Um, The third is just my general optimism that um, I have about the U.S. economy. Um, I I don't believe in long-term Japanification. Um, I just think that the um, social structures of the U.S. and the culture is very much geared towards entrepreneurship, um, building your own business, individuality. And um, I see that eventually coming back with the help of the government. Um, And I'm very optimistic long-term on the U.S. economy coming out of this and not getting into um, a secular stagnation situation. So I'm I'm long-term optimistic. And Anna, are you a long-term optimist? I am uh, uh, an optimist in the long term. And I guess to... Uh, to agree with Matt on innovation, I'm a big believer in, in science and technological progress. And uh, ultimately, this is what drives uh, GDP growth and can contribute to uh, better outcomes in terms of um, equality. Uh, and so I think that if, uh, if the current crisis uh, becomes a catalyst uh, for more investment uh, uh, into innovation and that results in high productivity, I think this is, this is a great outcome uh, for, for the whole world. Um, I also think maybe uh, a little bit um, uh, out, well, a lot out of consensus here, but I do think that uh, the current crisis might accelerate the transition uh, within the European Union towards more unity. Um, it's just another moment uh, when it became clear again, yet again, um, that the European Union or Euro areas and monetary union in particular cannot exist without fiscal unity. And so I think... If we do uh, move closer to the fiscal union uh, and perhaps, uh, you know, the recovery fund that has been discussed right now can be a start to that, uh, to that trend, I think uh, the the big tail risks uh, or the tail risks in particular of the euro area falling apart, some countries exiting, etc., might actually be reduced um, and that could give 
to potential for higher growth or generally better growth outcomes um, across the euro area, despite the negative demographic and despite all the structural issues that have been in place for so long. Uh, and I'm actually optimistic there. Thank you for those very big pictures. We're going to come right down to the individual uh, instrument uh, level now because um, it's time to play the Rich Pickings parlour game, hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? So very specific ideas um, on this. Um, when, when, let me ask you first of all, what's uh, your hot cake? I have two hot cakes. The first one is very much driven off my personal experience, which is I think staying at home this summer and doing DIY at home is the new summer vacation. So I would go long a basket of home improvement stocks. I think those are going to outperform expectations. Um, the second, I think that VIX today at 30 is too complacent. I think that volatility is going to increase from here. Um, VIX as, is the volatility index, the fear it, index. Yes, Yes, I think it's not uh, baking in the very poor, continued very poor economic data that we're facing. So I would go long VIX. And uh, your hot potatoes, what would you drop? I think that the inflation prints in the US are going to come in worse than we expect. Um, I know that expectations are not high to begin with, but I think it's going to be even worse. Um, And I think that the um, issue with non-payment of rents and um, owners' equivalent rent coming down is not something that's completely baked into U.S. break-evens at 117 today. So um, that's my hot potato. I'm taking the under on U.S. break-evens. Thank you very much. Anna, your hot cakes, what are you, what are you buying? Yeah, so maybe uh, also in the, in the theme of, of the current uh, lockdown, the current times, uh, I would say uh, bicycles, uh, not just, you know, as uh, real assets uh, to try to avoid uh, uh, the horrors of uh, London Tube, um, but perhaps uh, companies that... Uh, produce components for bikes that assemble bikes you know I do think and and not just actual um, the traditional bikes but also electric bikes uh, that allow people to go over longer distances uh, you know particularly for commuting purposes Uh, I think this is going to be a, a big theme and your hot potatoes and my hot potatoes. Actually, I'm going to be. I'm going to say the same what I said uh, a month ago in the podcast that we did, um, and that's uh, EM equities or EM assets. I, I do think we are yet to see a number of crises uh, across emerging markets. Of course, we need to be selective depending on where vulnerabilities lie. But overall, I think this is big, a big hot potato for me. So that's your strategic um, hot potato. Okay, um, Matt, finally to you in Hong Kong. Uh, what are your hot cakes? Uh, can I just link back to Anna's? And I, I like a bicycle one because I get these emails that from a thing that from a, a, a activity tracking app that says about every, ten new friends join it every day. So uh, that that seems like an awfully good idea. Um, hot cake. Um, I'm going to go quite broad and just say um, investment grade bonds. 
I think there's a structural change there. Um, if you think about BTPs post ECB when in when uh, Draghi said we'll do everything, um, they just kind of came in gradually, and they you know they changed their correlation, they changed their yield over those over those periods. And I kind of think that investment grade could go through kind of a similar change of um, suit, if you will, in terms of it becoming a, a newer defensive asset. And and I'm going to unfortunately also jump on um, uh, Anna's. Uh, one, but be a bit more specific. I think kind of emerging market current um, countries outside of Asia that are vulnerable. You know, it's 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 quite worrying to see the level of virus in some of these um, countries and the, the response that we look at every day in the West just cannot be um, deployed there. That's your hot potato, Matt Quaife. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for. I hope it's given you an insight into what the investment teams are thinking. If you'd like to read more, you can find it on our website, fidelityinstitutional.com. And there's plenty more to listen to as well on both our Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channels. Just search for those titles on your podcast app. Thanks very much to my guests, Anna Stupnitska, Wenwen Lindroth, Matt Quaife, Andrew McCaffrey and Ian Sampson. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.